We are embarking on what has proven to be a tough passage that's chock full, I think, with very rich meaning for us today. Peter is showing the sufficiency of Christ in reminding his readers that suffering can be an avenue for great blessing. We've seen that Christ has triumphed with his complete and permanent sacrifice. That Christ also proclaimed through Noah the need for repentance during the days of building the ark. The human race was so rife with sin and rebellion, we read this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. All but eight people rejected the message through Noah. And those eight were saved by via the ark. The others died in their sins, having rejected God and his message of repentance. And they are currently in what the Bible calls a prison, awaiting a future judgment. We've learned in our study so far that Christ is not bound by space and time, that he worked in times of the Old Testament, that he worked in times of the New Testament, and that he is working today. And we saw in that that suffering is a way to remind us of the most important aspects of life. We're not to throw away our confidence of the sufficiency of Christ in our suffering. And so Peter expands on these thoughts with the last part of our passage, but let's all stand. We'll read the whole passage, and then we're going to cover the last two verses today. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism corresponds to this. What does that mean? Corresponds to what? It is referring to the saving from judgment illustrated by Noah and the ark, but realized by us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Noah and the, and the ark and Christ are referred to in the previous verses. Peter is making certain we do not think of a ceremony or a ritual of baptize, uh, baptism as the main point. Being immersed in water where the dirt is washed from our fleshly body is not where the power resides. 
He is making clear baptism is an appeal to something else. So let's not miss the meat of this. That baptism typifies being immersed in judgment, being saved by God like Noah was immersed in the judgment waters, but saved by God. In his case, an ark. In our case, the resurrection. And the result is a good conscience. Now, this could be the good conscience that suffering Christians oftentimes fall victim to, thinking that because I'm suffering, I've done something wrong and God is condemning me. Talk to many Christians who feel this, or, or maybe when they get sick or, or something's a matter that, I've, that, that God has you know, got his thumb down on me. Or uh, it could be that the conscience that condemns them is the guilt of real sin and that they're delivered from this conscience through their salvation. Either way, Christ is the victory. When judgment comes, there is a guilt of sin, there's shame. There are consequences for the sin. And like a flood, there is an overwhelming sense of ourselves being lost in this pending death and doom. And people who live apart from God don't know how to define this. They may even deny it. But none of us can escape the consequences or reality of sin. It's the ultimate reason that people fill their lives with with activities and behaviors and entertainment that, that distracts them from the reality of sin in their life. I mean, how many people do we know cannot even be alone with their own thoughts because of shame? And so they got to have something in their ear, something going on. When you read through David's account in Psalm 32, you read of physical, emotional, and spiritual consequences of his unconfessed sin. His body was taking a toll for what was going on with his unconfessed sin. Listen, guilt can be overwhelming. Now, I'm not talking about false guilt. Some of us have grown up in religious settings where leaders were adept at foisting guilt upon them because of maybe not subscribing to some subcultural code that they wanted their followers to do. That's not what I'm talking about. This is a real guilt of sin by living in a world in which we have a moral order that God has created. And our conscience is grieved. It's affected by our sin. And all of us have certainly sinned. Sin shuts off this relationship with God and there is no remedy by our own effort. There is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves because of sin. Micah said, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I can perform all all of these religious rituals 
and still my sin is present. I can give up my very children. I can even sacrifice myself. And still, I'm in my sin. There's a way that seems right to a man, Proverbs says. But in the end, is the way of death. And it's a way of death, thinking that religion alone is going to do the trick, my performance is going to do the trick, some kind of psychological maneuvering is going to do the trick, therapy. None of that gets rid of the sin problem. We cannot escape the effect of sin. The psalmist says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Preach that on Mother's Day. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That means you and me. I mean, it's really hard to imagine coming to grips with the truth of these passages and thinking that there's some kind of, you know, self-induced behavior that we can do to rid ourselves of this. You can't. The judgment of God fell on Christ in his death and burial and comes out the other side in the glory of the resurrection. Christ went through judgment because he took upon himself sin. And we are in Christ, but we have survived, not because of an ark, but through Christ, the resurrection. And the resurrection is a proof that God accepted that sacrifice from the perfect Lamb of God. If judgment is passed and we are saved from it, then what does this message have to do with suffering? Well, we know that suffering cannot be because of the condemnation of God that has already been experienced by Christ. By faith, illustrated with baptism, we have died with Christ. He has taken our judgment from sin and took our suffering and rose from the dead victorious. Our worst suffering has been averted. Christ took the judgment and condemnation for us. We have died with Christ and have been raised in him. Therefore, any suffering that we experience is not because of the wrath of God being pinpointed upon us. Yes, God prepares us and matures us in testing, but remember, as Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does Peter mean by an appeal to God for a good conscience? Again, something extremely 
practical and daily for us. I make this appeal to God in believing the gospel that only God can deal with my conscience and cleanse it. When the offended God says that our sin is forgiven and our judgment is upon Christ, we know the impact of this is a clean conscience. God is satisfied with Christ, and therefore he sees us as cleansed. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the the flood is a picture that baptism also illustrates of death, burial, and resurrection. Death is defeated by the only way that sin could be. A perfect God and human would offer himself up as a sacrifice. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our text clearly states that the basis of a good conscience is not a religious ritual. It is not the power of positive thinking or any other man-made function. It is through the resurrection of Christ. And what this means for us is that we can enjoy the presence of Christ, enjoy the confidence that we have because of Christ with God. Because Christ is completely sufficient. I am insufficient. Every human is insufficient. Every human has sinned. But Christ is completely sufficient. Listen, this is not some incidental, irrelevant, theological minutia. This is the key to us enjoying our inner life. This is me being able to be alone with my own thoughts, knowing that I am forgiven, a child of God. This is the pathway to self-talk. This is how we experience contentment in our own head and heart. This is not some mind trick. This is not some voodoo. This is the holy God of the universe who says you are forgiven and now you're my child and this is because of what Christ has done for you. And there we find a good conscience. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected in him. In suffering, Jesus still reigns and rules. He has not surrendered us into the power of evil forces, even if we suffer until death. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has triumphed over all demonic forces. And by implication, we are going to reap the benefit of that. And in fact, the Bible even talks about us taking a part in this reign of Jesus at some point. Jesus reigns over all angelic powers. Listen, to sit at the right hand of a king signified that you acted with the king's authority. Listen to what God's word declares. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
The Apostle Paul declared that Christ was raised him, that he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The right hand of God is the seat of highest preeminence. It is a place of strength. It is a place of authority. When Jesus had accomplished his work on the cross, he was exalted to the highest place of honor, majesty, authority, and power. This is still true when we suffer. This is the reality. Whether the law of the land is in our favor or not, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I have repeatedly heard from pundits that the good news of Jesus has nothing to do with death or a cross. That it's, you know, helping, him helping us be a good person by his example and influencing people around you through all kinds of good deeds. That, my friends, is deception. That's a lie. Now, Jesus is a good example, but that's not salvation. There is no good news without a death, burial, and resurrection. After being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of being a great example. No, to the point of what? Death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Since we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, it has been bestowed upon us to have a place of privilege and power. We are not to play the role of a victim. We are not at the mercy of evil forces. Ephesians 2.6 says, we are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And listen to what this affords us. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. When Satan gets a grip on us or even upon others, God has given us the equipment to break those strongholds. We are not defenseless, but outfitted for victory. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. I will not bow down to the idol. I will stand firm. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Speaking of evil and lying spirits. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I watch the news. I look at how people are acting. And I need to remember this verse. That greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Christ's suffering led to all of these benefits that we're to enjoy. The message here is that through the unjust suffering of Christ, there was a path of blessing and triumph. And my dear friends, as followers of Christ, we are to embrace those promised blessings when we suffer. Now listen, I'll admit, it is a tough message within our culture and with even church culture. Most Christians find it difficult to traffic with, you know, it's not good enough that you agree on the gospel. You got to agree on every jot and tittle. We don't even know how to manage minor disagreements or inconveniences. I want what I want. I want you to agree with me. It's my pleasure that's important. It's my feelings that are preeminent. Let him who has an ear hear this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. This is all good news. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That's all great news. Provided, maybe, maybe this is a misprint, we suffer with him. No, that's there. You can check it yourself. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There are certain things that we understand, that we know, that we experience in suffering that otherwise we would not know. Again, remember, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the gospel that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Wow. Suffering. Blessing. Suffering. Preeminence of Christ. I'm in him. He's in me. Suffering. Fellowship of Christ. Noah lived this. Baptism exemplifies it. There was judgment. There was a saving. There is resurrection. Suffering does not nullify the present blessing and future hope, but it gives us an opportunity to hang on to him for dear life. He is our lifeline. That 
That's what Peter is saying. And regardless of what you think baptism is saying, who the spirits are, the message is that Christ is our lifeline. He's always been our lifeline. And he will continue to be our lifeline. Our problem is we think there are a lot of other things we have to have. Great, you know, church with a great building. Got to have my political, you know, positions affirmed. Got to have my political party ruling. None of that matters. Christ is still on the throne. And that's why we're here. And that's what we'll continue to proclaim. And that is what our hope continues to be. Let's pray.